Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 11, verse 27, through Mark chapter 12, verse 12, with Pastor John King. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, our online folks. Uh, just a reminder, you know, we're open for business. We'd love to see you. I understand. Uh, we have, uh, you know, there's vaccine hesitancy and then there's church hesitancy. And so uh, just want to encourage you folks online, to, if you've been holding back, to come on out. Uh, now, today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, verses 27, uh, through chapter 12, verse 12. Verse 27 of chapter 11 in Mark. While you're turning there, let me kind of quickly recap what we learned last week. Last week, we, we, le- uh, we joined Jesus early in the Passion Week. And they had just spent another night in Bethany, and now they're returning to Jerusalem with his disciples. We were informed that Jesus was hungry, so he looked over towards a lush fig tree, hoping to satisfy his hunger. You guys remember that. Now, upon closer inspection of the tree, it revealed no fruit. Not even the early buds of edible figs, despite the abundance of leaves. The tree was barren. It looked great on the outside. And so Jesus cursed the fig tree. He said, let no one eat the fruit from you ever again. And we say, well, why? Were you just mad, Jesus? You know, you're God incarnate. You could make food if you wanted to. No, he wasn't mad at the tree. He used it as a teaching moment, a teachable moment for us and for his disciples. Because the the scripture says very plainly, plainly, after he said that, he cursed the tree. It says that, and his disciples heard it. The lesson from the fig tree was in store. The symbolic metaphor between the fruitless fig tree and the nation Israel would instruct us with a spiritual lesson. That being that from a distance, leafy appearance looks good. It it's, it's indicates fruit, like an outward profession of faith. From a distance, the leafy appearance indicates the health by a caretaker. Now, you have a personal relationship with, a, uh, with God. A profession of faith indicates that a person's sins have been taken care of. On the outside, from the close inspection, though, reveals no fruit, just leaves, resulting in an empty profession and not good for the person or the kingdom of God. You see, the Lord is hungry to see fruit in our lives. And all who profess to know him will be inspected by him. It's a good reminder for us. This led us to Jesus' arrival at the temple where he would assume or assert, excuse me, his rightful authority over his house. The temple grounds had become defiled by the greed of the money changers and those who sold animals for profit to the pilgrims who had come to participate in the great feast that God had ordained. But instead of a place of prayer and holy worship, it became like a den of thieves. It was like a cave of robbers. A religious market sanctioned by the chief priests, scribes, and the elders. In his righteous indignation, Jesus began to drive out those involved in the buying and the selling. They were overturning. He was overturning their tables and their chairs. For us, this was a lesson in failure. The nation Israel, which was the birthplace of Messiah, the stewards of the Scriptures, and that's where the Bible came from. This was the birthplace of Jesus. The word of the Lord given to them by God through Moses and the prophets had been twisted and compromised resulting in no fruit but just dead religion, really. 
just a dead works. They were very organized, very legalistic. And it left them in a bad condition. It left them bound by their oppressors and infiltrated by the pagan culture around them. This is a warning for the church. Jesus had arrived. Now he was speaking boldly without being cruel or arrogant. That's another warning for us. Challenging you and I not to compromise our beliefs for the sake of pleasing society. Yet standing and moving among our culture. Ready to declare the reason for the hope that lies within us. Sharing Jesus' love with others and with each other. We concluded with a lesson of faith from Jesus. He saw the withered fig tree the next day, and of course Peter brought it up. He mentioned, you know, the symbolic correlation between Israel and the tree. Jesus replied to Peter's astonishment. Because Peter was astonished how quickly the roots had dried up and this tree had died. And Jesus' words were very simple. He said, have faith in God. Trust Him with life's insurmountable problems. Being confident that God is who He says He is. Believing that in all things, if we ask in faith, He will hear and respond when we do it unselfishly, without grudges in our heart against others. Today, Jesus will begin to directly engage with the Jewish religious leaders. Having shaken up their religious enterprise, they now sought to confront him directly, attempting to trap him with their tricky questions once again, challenging his authority publicly so he could be on the record. His response came first by silencing their argument and then with a direct parable about their coming judgment. Father, we thank you for our time together today. Lord, may you make this a time of learning and understanding for us. May it not be a waste of time for us today, Lord God. Let us put our hearts, lay them bare before you, our hearts and minds as you speak to us, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit by the power of the Word. Teach us, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So here we are. We're going to read the verses, starting with Mark chapter 11, verse 27, and continuing on into chapter 12. Follow along with me, if you would, please. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But... If we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you about what authority I do these things. Chapter 12, verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. 
Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones. They wounded him in the head, and they sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, and they killed him, and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he will come and destroy the vine dressers, and give the vineyard to the others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in his eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew they had spoken the parable against him, he had. So they left him and excuse me, went away. The first section of our message today asks a question. Jesus is asking, he says, where does true authority come from? Does it come from heaven or from man? Notice that then again they came to Jerusalem and it says as he was walking in the temple he runs into these characters, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Remember, remember we talked about last week this great expanse of the temple complex, 30 acres. And so he would be, Jesus would be off on the side and doing what he normally does. They had these great colonnades where you could get out of the shade. Luke 20, verse 1, tells us what Jesus was doing when he went in. It says, now it happened on one of these days as he taught, in the, uh, taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. You see, that's what he was doing when he got there, when the scribes found him. Jesus is not idle in his work. He was busy doing the master's work. He was busy doing God's work by preaching the gospel. And they confronted him. Now these chief priests, you know, we, we need to learn a little bit about them today. We're going we're gonna to kind of delve into who they are. Both present and previous chief priests, or high priests, if you will, along with members of their family, would occupy this place of importance. Presently, during Jesus' time, it was Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. He was the chief priest. And he happened to be the successor of his father-in-law, Annas. And as we follow the story through, you'll see uh, in one of the gospel accounts that Jesus is actually brought before both Caiaphas and Annas to be cross-examined and to be abused. Now, what did the high priest do? It's a reminder for us from the Old Testament. It was lawful for the high priest to perform the common duties of the priesthood, what they did at the temple and offering sacrifice. But his chief duty, the main thing that the high priest did was once a year on the Day of Atonement, he and only he alone would enter the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of the people. He also would provide over the Sanhedrin. This is the great council or the supreme council who, again, Jesus would be brought before during this week because they convened all the Jewish deliberal, or excuse me, judicial deliberations. Now, according to Mosaic law, no one could aspire to be the high priest or the chief priest, unless they were of the tribe of Aaron. 
And they had to be descended from a high priestly family, in other words. And they would hold that office until their death. That was the way it originally was when God uh, set it up and ordained this position. But from, oh, about 30 B.C. to the present time that they were in, uh, the last several decades, the office didn't remain with the person for life anymore. And it wasn't ever you know, given between the Jews. They didn't get to choose who it was. No, it was the Romans who chose. It was the ones that, who held sway over the nation Israel and had for many, many decades now. You see, culture had come in, and now they controlled the church, if you will. So it came to pass, according to the historian, the Roman historian Josephus, that during the 107 years intervening between Herod the Great and the destruction of the Holy City in A.D. 70, there would be 28 positions held. They, they would change office that frequently because of the oppressing rule of the Romans. You know, they had to get permission from the government to exercise what God had given them. Keep that in mind, if you will. Notice, too, that we had the scribes. We talked about them earlier, the grammatus. These were the lawyers. These were the sharp guys. These were the guys who knew the law as good as anyone, and they often taught it. And they held power. You know, you look at our legal system, and sometimes you realize, oh, you need a lawyer for that, right? You need a lawyer for this. You need a lawyer to take care of things because it's too complicated. In fact, you'd be foolish at times not to hire a lawyer or an attorney. And so here we have the scribes. They frequently collided with Jesus and the apostles. And for the most part, they were very hostile to the gospel. Then you have the elders, this word presbyteros. They were members of the great council of the Sanhedrin. They were the supreme court of justice. At this time, the great Sanhedrin at Jerusalem enjoyed a very high measure of independence. That was one thing that the Romans had not quite yet taken away from them. But it was only in, uh, it was in civil jurisdiction, and it was mainly according to Jewish law, but also in some degree to deal with criminal law. In fact, it was empowered for them to judge things that were not involving capital punishment. In fact, for one offense, the Sanhedrin could put to death on their own authority, even a Roman citizen who had breached into the Holy of Holies, who had gone into the temple, the most sacred part of the temple, the Sanhedrin still retained the ability to put someone to death. If it, you know, it was only for the high priest. Now one historian says, though, that the only case of capital punishment in connection with the Sanhedrin in the New Testament is that of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even though they may have had the power to do that, and if you knew they had the power to do that, you wouldn't go into that temple. I don't think anybody would. And so these, these men, these men of power and influence, they approached Jesus while he was teaching, giving the gospel message. They interrupted him. In verse 28, they said, By what authority are you doing these things? Authority. That word to them meant quite a bit. Exosia. It's the power of influence. It's right or privilege. And they, and they ask a second question, and who gave you this authority to do these things? In other words, 
Who are you to come into our place, our temple, and start doing the things that you're doing? Who gave you the right to do that? Who died and left you in charge? That's what they're saying. Who delegated this authority to you? Well, what are these things they're referring to? We've seen it just last week, cleansing the temple, receiving homage at the triumphal entry. You know, he was being led into Jerusalem on a donkey and people were laying down pine, pine boughs and blankets. He was even healing the blind and the lame right there in the temple. Even though Mark is not going to cover any more healing miracles, we see it in Matthew 21, 14. That people would come to him. It says, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. That's what he did. Now, for us, what does this mean? So far, you know, you've, you've heard about Jesus. People are asking questions about Jesus. What about you? At one point or another, everyone needs to ask the same basic question. Who is Jesus? Who is he? What is his authority? Is he merely a man or is he truly the son of God? You know, if you knew that your eternal destiny was resolved over this question, if you knew that where you would go after you die was key to you answering this question, you would take it seriously. Is he a man or of God? Is his authority from men or from within? But notice the question and the way they were asking it. It wasn't one of, you know, hey, we really want to know. Our hearts are open to receiving truth. It was more or less contempt. They didn't really want to hear the answer. They wanted to hear themselves talk. They wanted to hear themselves get it on the record so they could hold it against him. They were not wanting to learn the truth. It was for their own position, for their own gain. And he was, he was infringing on that. Not because they really wanted to know the Messiah. Think about that when you witness to somebody, when you talk to somebody about Jesus. And there's all kinds of reasons why people are closed to hearing the gospel message. And this could be one of the reasons, which is why we need to pray. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't just go off in our own flesh. Well, we do. And what good does it do us? Not much. One writer put it this way, since they refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, they had to fall back on what they understood from a worldly perspective about power and authority. In their view, all the true power and authority rested in the hands of the Romans and their Caesar. They were one of the many conquered people groups under the Roman Empire, which had the military might to set the agenda. They could set the rules. Even the Jewish high priest, as we said earlier, was appointed by the Roman emperor. Now Jesus responds to their question in verse 29. He says, I will also ask you one question. Seeing their obvious trap, Jesus now presented a demand on his own. He wasn't going to be manipulated and he wasn't going to be trapped by these guys. He says, then answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now we're often told that it's very impolite to answer a question with a question, right? It's often very impolite. Sometimes we need to do it for more information. 
Sometimes the question being asked isn't very clear. It's not very concise. This was a very clear and simple question that Jesus was at, had been asked and was asking. John MacArthur wrote this. He said, by answering a question with a question, Jesus was being neither rude nor evasive. To interact in this fashion was accepted rabbinic practice designed to force the questioner to consider the issue at a deeper level. In this case, the Lord's counter-question unmasked their hypocrisy. They already, they already knew what he claimed that his authority had come from God. They had already known. He had been in the land for three years. Word had gone all throughout Jerusalem about Jesus and his claims and his miracles were readily apparent. They wanted him to repeat this claim that he was God publicly so they could accuse him of blasphemy. Because blasphemy is a sentence of death. John's Gospel records an earlier visit by Jesus to the temple during one of the Passover feasts. Because he was, a, he was a Jew, so he would have gone to the temple as well every year. And he was teaching in John seven fifteen through 17 And the Jews marveled, saying, How does a man know letters having never studied? I mean, he, he didn't go to our institution. He didn't go to our finest teaching, our theological seminaries, if you will. How does he know this? How is he such a good teacher? And Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but it is him who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He had already made it clear to those folks. They were just trying to trap him. And so now the question in verse 30. Simple question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Was it ordained by God or was it something that John the Baptist made up? Starting his own little cult. The question really when he says, was it from heaven, it's the same as saying, was John from God? In other words, they're, they're, he's asking these, these officials, was it from heaven? Was John himself from God? If so, then Jesus was from God. If, if John was from God, if John was from heaven, then Jesus was from heaven. Why? Because being from God, John would not lie. And John testified in John 1.29 and verse 34, he said, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him, you guys remember this, and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 34 he said, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So if John is from heaven, then Jesus is from heaven. If John is from God, then Jesus is from God. Or was he from men? Was, he, was John just a mere man? If so then Jesus would be a mere man. This is basic logic for those who believe in heaven, like the Jews did. But how could this ever be? If John's and Jesus' ministry were really of men, explain this one to me. How, how come you had so many changed lives? How come you had so many miracles? How, can, how, can, how come so many marvelous works were accounted for? How were lives turned around and changed. You guys have heard modern day testimony. You have your own testimony of a life being changed by the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
and the things he's done. So how could this been, have been for man? We see what men and the world does. It's a mess. And so he, he says to them, is he from heaven? Is John of heaven or of men? Answer me. He wasn't going to mess around. You see, he jammed up their trap with truth. He stuffed truth into their trap. And they didn't like that. They didn't like that at all. And so now they had to make a decision. Remember, this is not a vague question that needed some more explaining. So they could sidestep it. And they knew it. Verse 31, they reasoned among themselves saying, oh, look, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why did you not believe him? You know, they, they know that they're trapped. They were caught in a dilemma. So now they had to start playing politics. They're thinking, we better calculate this one very carefully. We better really watch what we say out loud because people are watching. Now, if they believed John who was a prophet from heaven, if they truly believed that he was God's man, why wouldn't these Pharisees, why wouldn't the religious leaders have petitioned Herod to release John from imprisonment and prevent him from being executed? If they felt that strongly about what they believed. So they said, man, we, we've got to be careful if we say from heaven. You know, examining their hearts. This is good for you. Is Jesus from heaven? And you haven't surrendered your life to him yet. He says, but if we say for men, they, they feared the people. See, the politics and their lives, actually. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. You remember John the Baptist. He led thousands of people to this dirty little river called the, uh, the Jordan way out in the middle of the wilderness, far away from the religious center, thousands upon thousands of people came to be baptized. They were convicted of their sin. They wanted to hear what this guy dressed in uh, camel's hair and eating locusts. You know, he was really off the grid, wasn't he? And they wanted to hear him. They believed he was, he was for real, and of course he was. And so these men knew how the people felt about John, and they feared them. Why? Because the answer is, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. They believed that John was sent by God. The people did. And these were the same, some of the same people standing around right now who had gone out by the thousands to the Jordan River. They definitely had the highest regard for John the Baptist. He was a prophet indeed. Luke 20, verse 6, as they're wrestling with this question, he says, but if we say for men, all the people will stone us. All the people will stone us. That's why they feared. They, not only did they know that Jesus was very, or excuse me, John was very popular, but they said all the people will stone us. That's in Luke chapter 20, verse 6. And so they came up with their answer. After they consulted one another in verse 33, they answered and they said to Jesus, we don't know. <laughs> the smartest guys on the planet when it comes to religious manners, matters, they don't know? I don't think so. This revealed their guilt. They refused to face the truth. This was very difficult for them as well. For them to say they didn't know something was killing them. 
<laughs> because they thought they knew everything. That's, a, that's a, something to think about, folks, <laughs> myself. When we think we know everything, and to have to admit that we don't know, that's a sign of humility. Don't let it be our guilt. Don't let it be my guilt. And then he says, well, you know what? Neither, I'm, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He was done playing their games. This was what you would call checkmate. See, Jesus had finally had enough. They'd been observing his ministry now for three years. There was more than enough evidence to prove that Jesus was the chosen Messiah. Warren Wiersbe wrote this, The Jewish religious leaders had not accepted what John had taught, so why should God say anything more to them? Had they obeyed John's message, they would have gladly submitted to Christ's authority. For John came to present the Messiah to the nation. What does the Bible say about Jesus' authority? We talked about it a little bit earlier. First of all, note this. Jesus is the absolute highest authority. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. No higher authority. And also, there's many other scriptures, but it's another thing to remember about Jesus' authority. It's always in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. John 12, 49. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say, or excuse me, what I should say, and what I should speak. So as we were saying earlier, one writer put it this way, for Jesus' authority stems from truth. God is truth. He's the author of truth. So a person is authoritative only to the extent of being aligned with God. What is more, God is omnipotent. In other words, he has the ultimate power. No one compares to him. Not even the emperor. Not even the emperor. By way of application, I'd like to ask you to consider what's going on. You know, um, we've, we've heard, you've heard a lot about what happens to the church around the nation in North America, what's happened in Canada, what's happened out in California. We've been very fortunate here because by May, for the shutdown, the governor had made a decision that he wasn't going to come against a lawsuit that was presented to a federal judge in Raleigh. The federal judge in Raleigh ruled in the favor of the churches that they could not shut them down because of First Amendment rights. So that the state of North Carolina has preserved our First Amendment rights. Amen. But it's not that case in every state in the Union, I can tell you that. Having just come back from spending some time with some pastors from churches in California. And they had a warning. They had a warning for you and I because the state, if things don't change in our, in our society, in our culture, and I'm not trying to get you all worked up. It's a wonderful day. We're safe here. You're going to go home and have a safe time with your families. But we need to be wise. Because in our present culture war, you and I are under a steady barrage of pressure to compromise our own biblical convictions for the sake of peace. If you want peace, you'll see things our way, says others. 
And they're putting a heavy hand on some people. No longer in our society, folks, you know this, does tolerance mean that you respectfully disagree with society regarding marriage and sexuality or ethnic and racial concerns or the role of government, the role of law enforcement and upholding the Constitution. It's now become shameful or hateful not to affirm or even celebrate lifestyles that the Bible clearly calls sinful. Does that mean we become a bunch of haters? Absolutely not. No. But we're called to stand. The church in North America has become increasingly divided between woke progressives, progressive Christianity, those that would say, well, the Bible doesn't really mean that, or I don't agree with Paul on this. It's not really inspired, you see. Progressive Christianity, this is within the church. And those who remain committed to a biblical orthodoxy that has stood for how long? Centuries. And the battle rages, you see it, you may not see it in your own home, thankfully we don't see it here, but it could come to a, a, a theater near you. <laughs> it could come to a place near you. When you see what's happened up in Canada, where pastors are being jailed, yes, they're being jailed, and churches are being locked by the government, the doors are being locked, and you see in several churches in the United States, churches are now facing fines, one church, one pastor spoke this past week from uh, Calvary Chapel, uh, San Jose. Mike McClure, he's a, he's a mat, their church has amassed $2.7 million worth of fines so far from the state of California. And the reason was because they kept their doors open. They were trying to be safe, but they kept their doors open. They weren't calling their people back. People came back on their own volition. And people were piling into that church. It's a growing church. It sits right there in Silicon Valley. And they have this kind of interesting acronym about the area that they live in because it's 2% of people go to church now in that part of Northern California. And they talk about, we'll probably, we could get shut down for what I'm about to say, but they have an acronym. It's called FANG. The headquarters for Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google is all right there. 2%. And he's got a lot of folks that work in those places and work for the government attending his church. And they keep telling him, don't shut down. Don't give up. And you might recall when they said, well, uh, churches can meet up to you know, a certain capacity, but you can't sing. You're not allowed to sing in church. And this man and many other churches have stood up to them, and it's gone to the highest courts in the land. So how can you and I be ready? Hey, we live in the Bible Belt. We have the freedom. You know, it's, not, it's almost like out of sight, out of mind. So you ask the question, how can I be re ready for what's going on? We, because either it's going to be a revival or a rapture or things are going to continue to get worse in our nation. So how can you be ready? Well, in your faith, seek to grow in holiness. Deal with your sin. Seriously. Deal with your sin. All of us. Be prayerful. Get plugged in to a prayer group. We've, we talk about Tuesdays. Wherever you're at, get plugged in and be filled with the Holy Spirit all the time. 
As a free citizen, speak out. Exercise your right to assemble. Be wise about who you vote for. Look for those who want to govern under constitutional principles, even attending school board meetings or maybe even running for office. Because by the time Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem, the leaders of Israel looked and behaved more like Romans than Hebrews. That's our lesson from today that's coming forth. They compromised their historic faith for the sake of treaties. And the temple had become a commercial enterprise. A secular institution with religious trappings. A fig tree with luscious green leaves and no fruit. Now Jesus has a captive audience. Here he is. He's just answered the question which they can't answer. They basically were silent. And so he moves on to chapter 12. We talk about now the vineyard and the vine dressers. A parable of judgment. In verse 1, then he began to speak them in parables. Again, he had a captive audience. They were there. They're like, ah, we don't know. Well, let me tell you something. Here's, here he goes. He, he immediately took advantage of the situation before they could leave. He was going to show them where they were headed, where their sins were. We're leading them through this parable. And so he goes on to say, we read it earlier, a man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. A man comes in, a, a businessman, an entrepreneur, if you will. He sets this place up for success. He puts a fence around it. He puts the equipment needed to, to, uh, to harvest the wine. He wanted it to be fruitful and successful. So the man is the owner. As we follow this through, because they're going to realize it pretty quickly, this man is represent, represented by God himself. It's symbolic of who God is and how he treats the nation Israel. The man and a vineyard. Now last week we learned about the symbolic metaphor of the fig tree, that it was symbolic of the nation Israel. And God desired fruit produced because they're being rooted in Him, if you will. But they became rooted in religion and they produced no fruit. Here we see another agricultural metaphor. The nation Israel symbolized, say that five times, as a vineyard. Isaiah 5.7, they would have known this verse. Isaiah 5.7 says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So the man, the owner, symbolic of God, plants a vineyard and he puts a hedge around it to keep animals from coming in and eating the grapes. In a spiritual sense, this is assuring growth and fruitfulness for God's kingdom. We have the protection of the helper, the power of the Holy Spirit for us today. Of course, he dug a wine vat. This was a wine press. Ancient wine presses were often made and dug from solid rock into two parts. One part for the grapes where they could press them down and another part lower, a smaller vat to receive the juice. So the equipment needed to get the work done 
God gave them his law. He gave them all the things they needed. And of course, he built a tower to guide and protect the vineyard from thieves. This is, again, symbolic of the assurance that you and I have and the security we have of being in God's care. And then what did he do? He leased it to the vine dressers that went into the far country. Who were the vine dressers? These were the tenant farmers. This was a common practice. I don't know much about agriculture today. You might lease a field and give the person everything you want uh, as, a, as the owner of the field, and then you take a part of it. But it was symbolic of the religious leaders who were supposed to represent God to the people, these vine dressers. And see, the picture is starting to become very clear to the folks. But he continues on. He tells the story. He says, now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers. Vintage time, that word kairos, you may have heard it before. That means the right time, due season, the proper time. Apparently it would take about three years before crops could be harvested. And in fact, Mosaic law required an owner who wasn't harvesting, an owner to wait three years before receiving any produce. Leviticus 19, 23 through 25, it says, When you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised or forbidden. Three years it shall be as uncircumcised to you or forbidden, and it shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year of its fruit it shall be holy, a praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year you may eat its fruit, that it may yield its increase. I am the Lord your God. So at the right time, he sent a servant. So far, so good. You know, the story's going, this is the way it's supposed to be, right? It's a great story, Jesus. Except for verse 3. The owner sent the servant, and what happened? Well, they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. That word beat him, is a, it comes from a Greek word, duro. Dur is the root from the Greek word derma, which means skin. So they beat him hard enough to raise his skin. And they sent him away empty-handed because these tenant farmers decided that they were going to keep the fruit for themselves. Again, he sent them another servant in verse 4, and at him they threw stones, they wounded him in the head, and they sent him away shamefully treated. It gets progressively worse. To be shamefully treated is to be dishonored, to be marked with disgrace. Now think about the Passion Week and what we're coming to. What's going to happen to Jesus? And again, he sent another, and to him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Matthew said they were stoned. And many others. The owner demonstrates supernatural patience because he keeps sending them over back again. Think about God. Notice it says again and again, the owner, as though God had sent his prophets to them and his patience and mercy was on display. For hundreds of years, God sent his prophets to the nation Israel and they didn't respect them. This cycle was soon to be recognized by the Jews as a picture of all the prophets or the servants God had sent to the nation Israel over the centuries past. Their rejection of God's message to repent and return to him. In verse 6, therefore, Still having one son, not just a servant, but a son, his beloved, he also sent to them last. His beloved, uh, Agapitas, a dear son, used to describe the father's love for Jesus. 
Mark 1, 11, 10 and 11. You see this being spoken by God himself. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in him whom I am well pleased. Mark chapter 9 we saw recently. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. So the owner sent his son, saying, they will respect my son. They will reverence him. They will feel respect for him because of their shame. That was the hope. That was the hope that the father had when he sent Jesus to the nation Israel. And that was the hope that he had as he went through the land for three years, proclaiming that the kingdom is here now and it's time to repent. And that's the same hope he has for us today as the gospel message goes out hoping that you will repent. You see, the owner, God, was willing to make things right, even if it cost the death of his own son. Who would do that? Who would do that? Only God himself. In verse 7 it says, But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Hebrews 1 1 and 2. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in the last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And they said, Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Jesus was getting right next to their hearts, folks. Right now, he was getting right next to them because they've been plotting his demise for the past three years. Another writer put it this way, according to traditional law, land that remained unclaimed for three years would become the property of those working on it. If they killed the heir, they reasoned, the land could be theirs. You see, their minds had gone crazy. And so he finishes... The story says, they, so they took him and they killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. There was no burial. Just his body left to be picked apart by the vultures. When we think of Jesus, we know that he was buried by those who loved him. But he was humiliated and disgraced by being mocked, stripped of his clothing, and hung on a cross like a cr common criminal. Chuck Swindoll wrote, They plotted to destroy the owner's son in order to inherit the vineyard in his place. This was a logical and legal impossibility. Murderers do not inherit the estates of the people they kill. Murderers inherit only the penalty of murder, execution by stoning. Their over-the-top ambition made them criminally insane. They seized the son, killed him, and threw his body out of the vineyard. When you see the work of the devil in play, and you see it come against godly reason and biblical and sound reason, you see the work of the devil in play in our world today, and you wonder how could people be so, in fact, criminally insane by the things that are done. But then, of course, you look in your own heart, and you realize you're not far from it. 
Because by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, our hearts are evil because of the fall, because of sin, because of Adam. But always remember that Jesus came to do what? Destroy the works of the devil. That's what he wants to do in your heart today. So by now we understand it just like they do. The owner of the vineyard is God himself. The vineyard is his kingdom, which he planted in Israel at the time. This was a, a, this was a judgment, a parable of judgment. A lot of times parables that Jesus would speak to those who didn't believe, they wouldn't understand. But in this case, he made it clear, and they understood very clearly. Though the, or excuse me, through the covenant which he had made with his people in the wilderness, God had accepted them as his peculiar people. We know that. The Bible tells us. And he had taken them the very best care. They said they had, he had taken, or excuse me, he had taken the very best care of his nation, the nation Israel, as we follow, as we've been studying uh, midweek through uh, Genesis and Exodus. He separated them from the Gentiles. He gave them a strong hedge of his law to protect them, if you will. He set the kingdom and the dynasty of David as their strong tower against all enemies and the temple at Jerusalem. The rich wine of God's mercy flowed in streams to this nation. But history shows how the chosen people of God repaid his mercies. For the husbandmen, or the vine dresser, are the individual members of the Jewish church, excuse me, <laughs> but especially their religious leaders. All these God admonished and warned again and again to bring forth fruit that measured up to the standard of God's mercy. But instead, his prophets were treated with contempt. They were abused, as Elijah, Elisha, and Jeremiah. They were even put to death. And still, God's patience was not exhausted. Because of his eternal plan of love, he sent his only son, his only beloved son, Jesus Christ. But even the leaders of that day, they were even now, they wouldn't hear this message. They were even now planning to kill and they would carry out their evil plan within a few days. This would be the last day, if you will, before Jesus, now things really start to heat up as we continue. And this is only one part of the day because he'll be asked several questions. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to cover his interaction with the, the uh, Jewish leaders uh, individually by different stories. So now we get to the end and we see the application of the parable. And that's God's justice. Because eventually, God's patience runs dry. You have no idea when and if you will have your next breath. Your next heartbeat. You have no idea. And if you're standing in rebellion before God, if you're watching online, or even perhaps here today, and you're standing in rebellion to God, and you're holding your hand out and saying, God, I don't want any of what you have to offer. I don't want your son. I only want what I want. Stop. Think about it. Think about the fact that nothing is guaranteed. Nothing. Except eternity. So he responds, he finishes the parable in verse 9. He says, therefore... What will the owner of the vineyard do? In other words, consider all these things that have happened and knowing full well that they understand every symbol that he was given, every metaphor that he was presenting them. Question, 
what will the owner of the vineyard do? You see, this parable was meant to highlight the truth. And he opens the door for a response, but at the same time declaring his judgment. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Matthew 21, 41. They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their seasons. To destroy is that word apolomai. That's loss of eternal life delivered up, delivered up for eternal misery. In Luke 20, verse 16, they answer him when he asks the question. He says, he, will come, he, give, he gives the declaration, he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. You know, they, they, they registered with him. No, no, you're not going to do that to us. <laughs> After the faithless tenant farmers, back to the parable when he says, I'm going to give the vineyard to others. The faithless tenant farmers were destroyed. The owner would give the vineyard to others. This is a cryptic reference to the church. Us. <laughs> You're like, great. <laughs> he laid it on us. He's put it on us to bring the message to the world, to represent Jesus as ambassadors in our world. The Jews would have shuddered at the prospect of God giving their inheritance to others. That's why they said not. And they correctly understood God's covenant with Abraham to be unconditional and irrevocable. They couldn't foresee, however, the intervening period in which the others would become the stewards of God's word and redemptive plan for the world. See, we're in that period of time. This is a time where the church is now representing God. And the nation Israel, we're going to study about this midweek. We're going to study about this for several weeks. The nation Israel has started to regather and they've reformed, but they haven't become spiritual. They haven't become saved yet. But God has to have them in one place for the things that are going to unfold. He has to gather them whether they know him or not. It's a very secular nation presently. So we're in that intervening period right now. It's called the church age before the rapture of the church. So eventually, Israel will receive her covenant promises, and we're going to cover that in our midweek study. So Jesus is now proclaiming his authority to pronounce judgment. He's, he's laying it on. He's right there in their face, telling the powers that be what it's all about. We know from history that in A.D. 70, in about 40 years, the temple would be destroyed, and thousands of Jews would be killed by a long siege as the Romans overtake them. And then they eventually scattered until 1948. And he says, verse 10, Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He asks the question, Have you read this scripture? And we know that of course they had. They were scribes. They were the smart people, the religious leaders. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The stone representing the Messiah. The stumbling block for the Jews. While they're walking in their religious patterns, and while they're having their life of, of just rules and regulations, trying to keep the law instead of trusting in Him, guess what? They trip over Him. 
They trip over this Jesus. He becomes a stumbling block. Paul explains it in Romans chapter 9, verses 32 through 33 very well, much better than I do. The builders rejected. They killed Christ and they discarded him. They hung him on a cross and they threw him away. This was the stone which would become the chief cornerstone. Because the great architect, God, raised Jesus from the dead. And he took that stone that they took away and he became the chief cornerstone that all of the church is built upon. Ephesians 20, verse 20, excuse me, Ephesians 2, verse 20, 22. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, on whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Why is it that you have the peace of God in your heart? Why is it that you know when you hear the truth and you honestly take it and believe it and you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, why is it that you can have peace among all the chaos that goes on in this world? Because God has laid the foundation and Jesus is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is so important that anybody that's in the building trades know you cannot lay a foundation unless and all the other stones will not be right if that one's not right. And he says in verse 11, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Amen. Amen. So Jesus was referencing Psalm 118. He was talking about Psalm 118 verses 22 and 24. Standing right there in front of these current religious leaders, men who should have recognized their Messiah, Jesus summarizes the present and future events ordained by God. His rejection, God's saving grace, the eventual position of supreme authority. We know this is all going to happen that way. Matthew 21, 43 and 44 says, he adds this. He says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation bearing fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You see, Jesus will be vindicated. The stone that they rejected has now become the chief cornerstone, the most important stone of the whole structure. Without it, everything falls apart. And so realizing how badly he had them, <laughs> realizing that he was talking directly to them and he was prophesying their future, what did they do in verse 12? They sought to lay hands on him. That's, a, that's not a handshake, okay? That's not a big hug. They sought to lay hands. When you say, I'm going to lay hands on you, keep in mind, that could be meaning to kill them. They feared the multitude. You know, they, they couldn't do it. They were trapped. They're like, everybody's watching. We can't kill him right now. We can't lay hands on him. But their, their hearts were there. So they left him and they went away. He's gone. Just like the wicked vine dressers in the parable, these men had lost their mind and their lust for power. Thinking they could kill Jesus and still inherit from God what he had intended to them to be just faithful stewards of. Be careful when you think you own your religion and those who don't know you don't know Jesus and you have your religion. Be careful how you treat others who don't. Because you're a faithful steward of what you know. Everything you've been taught, everything you know, God's going to hold each of us accountable for that. 
So we need to be careful how we steward that. But they were afraid of losing people's support, weren't they? And that's what kept them from grabbing Jesus. They were political. But they felt the sting of this parable. And it didn't lead to repentance. See, that's the problem. A lot of times we receive the truth of God. We receive His Word. We know we need to change. We know we need to repent. But sometimes we just walk away. Just leave it there. Their hatred of Jesus prevented them from having any effect on their calloused hearts. Next week we'll study the next encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. But keep in mind that in two, two short days on this Passion Week, Jesus himself will be crucified. Pastor John's going to come up. We're going to get ready to close our... Let's, let's, let's go ahead and bow our heads and, and close with prayer. And then we'll stand. Lord, I just want to pray for all those who may have heard your word today. And, and, and your word being preached throughout our land. To the lost and the dying. Those who need truth. And I pray, Lord God, that your word would not return void in our hearts and all those who have heard it in my heart. Lord, let us examine our hearts that we might be ready. We know what's going on in the culture around us. Sometimes we don't like to be reminded of that when we come here. But Lord, you are preparing us. You're preparing your church and your people to abide in you, to put our trust and faith in you. But that can only come if we will truly examine our hearts and take our sins seriously that we would desire to be holy before you. Because we sang that song earlier, you know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. May that be real. May that mean something to us in a practical sense, Lord. Not just a song we sing with our friends and our loved ones. Lord, go before your word. Go before the truth that it brings. Lord, keep us in your hand and guide our steps for your work. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all that you do. We thank you for your patience and your mercy, your long-suffering when we were disobedient or when we have wandered astray. Lord, you were patient and you kept again and again speaking into our lives. So go, go before us, Lord. Again, I pray that this wasn't a wasted time today, that this was time that would bear fruit in our lives for your glory and for your kingdom. As I pray in your precious son's name, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.